Welcome to another episode of Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm your host, Sean Rowley, and with me is Derek Specht. Uh, Derek, you went out and made a purchase this week after um, seeing my big purchase. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I've been looking at this, uh, and it's a camp stove. I've been looking at it for about two years now. I've been pondering and pondering purchasing uh, this item. And I don't, know, I don't know about you, like I've, I've used many different types of fueled stoves. I've used butane, I've used white fuel, and uh, for the most part, like, I, I don't know, the, my go-to is usually the white fuel, like a normal kerosene Coleman stove type thing, right? Yeah, I've, I started with the propane, little propane stoves, uh, the one burner you screw onto the top of the green propane tank thingy, um, when I first got into canoe tripping and that, and then after so many years, I decided I was going to switch over to uh, the white gas and I went with the uh, whisper light mm-hmm. which is a nice one now they they yeah there's there's many different types you can get out there but yeah my my current uh, weapon of choice is the MSR whisper light yeah I've got a uh, a Coleman Peak 1 it uh, what I like about it is that the uh, the fuel bottle is separates from the stove itself and you, I pack them separately so the stove itself packs nice and snug away inside my set of pots and and the fuel bottle, it, it packs separately in, in a boot or whatever to protect it. And I, it's, I've always liked the white fuel. It's, uh, the one thing is you, to carry enough of it and have enough backup on a longer trip. Uh, like I've used them in wintertime and summertime and so on. Wintertime, you end up having to bring more fuel because you're melting snow or whatever for drinking water. But uh, you said you, you went with propane originally. Have you ever tried the butane stoves? No, I, I've never tried the butane stoves. Uh, I went propane because a lot of the stuff I already owned, um, I was running off the big, uh, the big white propane, barbecue propane tank. Oh, we were like, doing the car camping, right? Okay, yeah. So it was only, you know, I, I could put uh, my lantern on the top of um, one of the green propane tanks. Those small ones. Yeah, one, one of the small ones, yeah. And I mean, like I said, I was used, when I first started getting canoe tripping, that's what I was using is what I already had. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to go spend oodles of cash on this sort of stuff. And then, yeah, over time, then I, I, I finally got rid of that because you're carrying these big, heavy green things all over the yeah. place, right? Yeah. And, and, and they, they, when it got cold out, they didn't seem to last as long. Well, it's not just that they didn't last long. The, uh, they need, they need the, uh, the heat or whatever to expand and and create that gaseous whatever that flows into the stove and I know with propane and as well with uh, especially with the butane stoves the uh, if it gets too cold it stops the pressure drops so low that you can't even cook on it just you end up simmering everything because you just can't get enough flame and I, I discovered that on a couple of winter camping trips years ago and uh, so that's why I, I kind of got stuck with uh, and convinced that white gas is the way to go but with even with white gas on some of the longer trips or in winter when you're melting a lot of snow for drinking water you you it's really hard to know how much white gas you can carry with you yeah i i take i on my longer trips i take two of the little red um fuel canisters with with the white gas in it if i'm going by myself for a few days or you know five days because i i prefer to do my cooking over the fire um, I'm only using it really to boil water first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. So I'm not using the stove all that much. So one of them, one of the, the fuel canisters is more than enough. But when, yeah, when you're on a longer trip, then if you coordinate with your, if you're going with, with a group, you know, everybody can carry a fuel canister, but you only need one stove. Exactly. The pro, you know, or a second one, depending on how long you're going, a uh, second one for a backup. But uh, I've never had an issue with the white gas at any time of year. Again, it's it's just the what happens when you run out sort of thing and mm-hmm. how much are you going to use. And like you say, in the winter, you're using more of it to to cook more and to, to boil the water. And, and it, it takes a bit longer because of the colder temperatures for things to, to heat up, right? Yeah, and some of the white gas stoves, they uh, it's probably not highly recommended, but they do say that they can 
burn a variety of, of liquid fuels like kerosene or uh, gasoline. But gasoline is very, it, it was bad in the past because of the lead additives and, and whatever chemicals in gasoline. And so it's really not recommended that you cook with it. But you could, you could put that in and use it. It's just, I, I personally wouldn't do it. But what I did discover is that the white gas can be used to run a car. <laughs> I ran out, I remember one time I ran out of gas and the only thing I had was my camp stove fuel and I poured it into a tank and it got me uh, an extra five kilometers through near a gas station. It worked fine. But uh, what we're talking about today is uh, what I went out and purchased, I've been looking at it for a few years, is uh, a vital grill stove. So this is a, uh, it's a small assembly gas stove. If you go at V-I-T-A-L grill, G-R-I-L-L.com, you can, I'm sure some of you out there would have seen these stoves or some of you might be aware of it. And as we talk about this day, obviously you won't be able to see what we're talking about, but I'm going to show Sean, I, he hasn't seen this stove yet, and I'm going to kind of display some. I've used it uh, once so far since I bought it last week, and uh, it works pretty good. And it seems like it would be something ideally that you would like, and I discovered a drawback that I wasn't really thinking about with this stove that, uh, and it's the reason why I like white gas, because it's a cleaning burning stove and it doesn't blacken the outside of a pot. Now you burn, cook over fire sometimes or yep. heat water over fire. So you're used to having blackened pots. Yeah. I'm not used to having blackened pots. So I'm just going to pull it apart and assemble it here for Sean. So as you see, I just pulled the, uh, the, uh, pot stand out from underneath it mounts in and inside and, uh, so it just, if you guys go to the website, you'll see it. There's uh, here you got the, the pot stand. It, uh, one of the, one of the things uh, unique to this is it does have a little blower fan. And what it does is it can, uh, it has a little gate valve for air and you hook up the uh, little battery pack and there's a high and low setting and I uh, when I first got it home when it first arrived I uh, I went out and I boiled two pots of water out in the back deck and it boiled a, a, I measured out exact liter of water in the pot and uh, each time was about five five and a half minutes and uh, which was on the low setting and uh, so that I thought that was pretty good and all I did was I uh, I had some twigs and branches from uh, what fell off the trees over winter and I had those just chopped up into like two or three inch lengths and and it burned really well the wood was really dry and dead but uh now as Sean can see here there's a there's a little air gate that you can meter the amount of airflow into the uh, firebox itself and uh, a little battery pack with a fan you, you guys are going to hear a loud fan here in a sec so that's on the low setting there's a high setting and I was really impressed with uh, when the air flowed through it the air flows up through the fire and when you have a fire going you have to keep the fan going because it actually self cools the stove itself but this thing it's like a like a blacksmith's uh, little coal fire thing that uh, you that you heat metal with right this thing is uh, pretty impressive it uh, it says according to the website it gets up to about 20,000 BTU and uh, like I said, a one liter water in about five minutes. It's got the built-in fan, accelerates combustion. And the two AA batteries that come in a little tiny battery pack last for about 40 hours of continuous use. Not that you'd have it for continuous use. So if you had brought four batteries, uh, two batteries as a backup, you'd uh, easily have weeks of camping and cooking on this thing, right? Uh, it has a pot stand. The pot stand claims it uh, can hold about 50 pounds. The unit itself is about 1.6 pounds. It's uh, compact, it's small, it's uh, not any bigger than any white gas stove or butane or propane stove, although you don't have the big green propane tank, which I don't like. And what I like is that it's made in Canada. Now I think it's assembled in Canada because I don't think you can, it, it costs about 75 bucks and I really don't think you could uh, manufacture it in Canada for 75 bucks. So the parts probably are, probably are made in China, but it's assembled in Canada. It's a Canadian company. So this is, you've got a little metal box attached to a fan for, for all intents and purposes yeah. here. And you just fill it, you, you set it up. I mean, yeah, it was quite easy for you to pull it apart and set it up. Mm -hmm. uh, like 30 seconds. Yeah. And you just break a bunch of twigs and stuck it, stick them inside the metal box. Twigs, 
little leaves or whatever. Bark or any, anything any debris burns. you got laying around. Exactly. And you just start the fan and you set some fire to it and the fan keeps it going. And yeah. Now, when you're cooking the water, cooking the water, boiling the water, cooking whatever, um, do you keep adding sticks to it? Uh for the five minutes it took me to boil, I, I just put some twigs in, put the pot on, put it on low for low airflow, and uh, I never had to feed it at all. Uh, the second pot, I just put less wood in so that just to see how much wood it would take, and I did kind of throw a twig or two in every couple of minutes as it was boiling, but it was, uh, it the heat coming off it is is impressive. Like it's, it's like a, it's like a torch coming up and cooking the, heating the water. So it was really impressive. How long did it take for the little box to cool down afterwards? Uh, I, I actually, I just left it running and I walked away and I was doing some yard work. So I, I don't know how long it took, but it, uh, I don't think it takes more than a couple of minutes because it uh, burns up the wood so fast. It's pretty impressive. And uh, when I did, when I walked away from it, I took the pot off and I just let it burn out. I, uh, I put it on high just to burn it up really quick. And it wasn't long. I was gone less than five minutes walking around the yard when I came back. It was it was out. It was cold. The whole assembly was cold. There was Even the ashes were cold. So it, uh, it does end up cooling itself really well. Well, this looks like something that would be good um, anywhere, like canoeing or kayaking. It would be. It would you be. You know, if you're, if you're, like we talked last week about... Um, Georgian Bay destinations. Mm-hmm. And if, I mean, you're going along the, the Georgian Bay coast and you can just hop up on one of those islands, you know, whip this thing out. There's lots of just small debris. You're not having to cut big chunks of wood. I didn't use much wood at all. I used very little wood. There was, uh, I think the chunk of wood that the branch that fell off the tree was probably about, uh, four feet long. And I, I used it all up, but I used it up because I was playing, but I think I would have only had to use like less than half of it to uh, boil water. So, you know, a 12 to 18 inch stick and it was about the size of my thumb and I cut it up with some shears and brought, snapped some in half with my fingers and it was, it just burned up really well. It, uh, I didn't use much wood to boil the water. So if you were on a beach or something and you could pick up some, some uh, driftwood or something, throw yeah, it in. exactly. Yeah, so this sounds like a good shore lunch style yeah, it's, Style, uh, uh, and thing. a lot of people are skeptical and I w- I've been skeptical. That's why it took me two years to consider buying this thing is, uh, you're relying on a battery pack to feed the fan, which makes that torch like flame. But really, if your batteries died, then, well, you just have a campfire and cook over the campfire. So you're still using fuel or just wood to cook with, but this here, it just, it throws so much heat. Like I said, it's about 20,000 BTU, they say. And I believe it. Uh, when I had it on the high setting, it was just a, a flamethrower coming up against the bottom of the pot. Now, when I look at my Whisper Light stove, it was uh, it was what hundred bucks to buy it, and then you got the uh, the canister as an extra, and the fuel as an extra. I mean, the fuel's dirt cheap anyway. Um, and you say this is about seventy six dollars. It was seventy six fifty. I bought it at Lee Valley. I went on Amazon.com or Amazon.ca. It was $72. And I went to another camping store, which I can't remember right now, but it was $79. So they're in that, in the 75 to $80 range. Yeah. And I mean, you're not looking at the extra fuel because I mean, that's as you find on the ground. Yeah. Twigs and branches. Yeah. And yeah, there's no extras. Now, packing this away, you definitely need... Um, a bag that you can put it into. And it comes with a bag. As you okay. can see here, anybody uh, at home, if you look on the website, it shows everything that comes with. So this comes with a small black bag that everything shoves into. It's very compact. It's the size of a large hardcover novel. Uh, so that's end up what you carry. And it's very it's very tough. It's, uh, it's uh, like aluminum structure. It's got about, it's just a, on a flat bed. It's got little six little feet. And, uh, it's a, it's a nice compact unit. It's uh, yeah, it's got around the fan. It's got that heat sink. Yes. Uh, so the heat sink it. is louvers where the air sucks in. Yeah. And, uh, again, only Sean can see this, but it's got uh, a thing that you can cut off either more or less airflow. So if you want to simmer with this thing, you just close in on it and leave it on the low setting and it's just going to blow a little tiny bit of air and, and you simmer your pod. So if you're making 
you know pasta or something out in the backwoods and it uh, you can just simmer it or whatever right yeah but if you need a full-on boil then you just pull the gate back and and yeah just put it on force high. the force the mm-hmm. air in there and there you go it, that's a pretty cool looking little uh, yeah little gadget there i'm pretty happy with it but one thing that I wasn't expecting or I wasn't thinking about, which I guess would work with you because you do cook over fire, is uh, the pot that I used is completely tar covered in black yeah. on the bottom. So that's, uh, that's I, 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 I never, I ha- haven't done it in the past and it's just because of the blackening, but when you rub your finger across it, it's just, it's tar covered. So anybody who does cook over an open flame anyways, like a campfire, then they're used to this. But for me, if I'm going to use this thing, I'm going to have to uh, pack in some extra bags or something to... Put your pot in. Yeah. Otherwise, anything, everything else in my pack is going to get blackened. Yeah. Well, I mean, I when I cook over the fire, I take my pots and I'll, I'll scrub them with some, some beach sand and some water. Mm-hmm. To get as much of the black off as yeah, I can. Yeah, I never thought I didn't have right? sand in my backyard, but yeah, I also bring. I usually have a little, uh, not an SOS pad, not because when you say SOS pad, you're thinking the, the silver ones with all the uh, soap in it there. Mm-hmm. Um, but a little scrubby. There's a, a little, those little. I can't even remember what they're called now. Oh, but the green things. The, yeah, the little green scrubby sponge. With sponge. A green sponge. Yeah, they're yeah. Just, just sponge. Yeah. And uh, I just bring one of those, a couple of those mm-hmm. in, and, and they work like a charm. Well, as you can see here on the bottom, I did scrub one spot. I couldn't get all the black off, but uh, so this was just a white aluminum pot on the outside. Now it's nice and black. <laughs> so that is now your Vital Grill cooking <laughs> cooking pot. Yes, yes. Now does your Vital Grill fit into it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Then you should have gone yeah. with a bigger pot. Th- this was a throwaway <laughs> pot anyways. I, I I just bought new pots for the kitchen recently. So this was one of the ones that I had when I first moved here to Ontario. It was the first one I, first Ontario pot that I owned. But now it's, it's blackened. <laughs> well, that looks, like I say, that looks like a pretty cool little uh, stove it is. you got it's there. It's neat. And it's, uh, they can call it a survival stove. So it's one of those things, if you got a little you know, package of batteries and you can like live off, you can cook off of twigs and stuff. You're, you know, if you're in a blackout or if you're camping or, or whatever, it, it's a, it's a resource. It's a, a cooking resource that uh, doesn't take much expense to run. You're looking at dead twigs off of a pine tree or something like that. Yeah. And if you're wanting to just go for a day trip or something, you know, I mean, that's, that's good for backpacking as well, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And you're not having to carry fuel with you. It's 1.6 pounds, everything included. So it's, it's, it's fairly light. It's, uh, it, I wouldn't say it's only slightly lighter than the, uh, or slightly heavier than the current stove that I'm using. And well, actually, if you consider the extra fuel that I carry, it's, it's a lot lighter than what I normally carry. Yeah. And that's the thing you got to take into effect here is not only is it just the stove, but you got to add your fuel canisters in to that weight as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know what, I think it's definitely uh, something to check out. It is. So you want, And if you want to see it online, what's the address again? It's vital, V-I-T-A-L, vitalgrill.com. Vitalgrill.com. Check it out and uh, see what, what we, you know, unfortunately being on the radio, you can't see it live and in person, but uh, go to vitalgrill.com and uh, take a peek at the, the stove. I think it's uh, I think it's a good little purchase you got there. Yeah, and if anybody out there, uh, you take a look at it, check it out online, tell us what you think. There's various methods of of uh, contacting us. It's either by Facebook or, or Twitter. You can find all of these contact information on our Facebook page. And yeah, paddlingadventuresradio.com. And what we'll do maybe is take a couple of pictures and post the link of uh, your stove up on our our Facebook page. Yeah, perfect. This portion of the show is brought to you by Algonquin Outfitters. Algonquin Outfitters, providing quality Algonquin Park backcountry adventures for the entire family since 1961. Whether you want to get on the water for a day or a week, the friendly staff at Algonquin Outfitters can help you out. Find them online at algonquinoutfitters.com or visit one of their 12 locations. Algonquin Outfitters, your outdoor adventure store, with locations in Algonquin Park, Muskoka and Halliburton. Now, we've been talking a few things and I've been chatting with a few people who are getting ready for summer and they've talked about a couple of trips and, and the sites they've stayed on and the places they've gone. 
And I start looking at some of the trips that I've done and some of the sites I've stayed on and I've seen and I haven't been able to stay on. And that's one of the big things that um, in the groups I run in, they, they all talk about different campsites. And I know some people, they know campsites on lakes back of their hand. They'll be able to say, you know what, on this lake there's there's a site up here which is perfect for this time of year, a site over here which is it's got a beach, and this one here is absolutely garbage, don't stay on it. Uh, but when I go to different lakes, I usually have to take a map to write on the map, you know, circle, this is a campsite you want to go on, or, or I'll put a circle and an X through it so that it, it, I know don't go on that site again and don't recommend it to anybody. Yeah. Well, let's be honest. That's uh, the, the campsites when you're doing interior camping in any park, whether it's Killarney, Algonquin or any of your, whatever your favorite park is, the campsites really make or break a trip. Like if you're, if you're landing late in the day and it happens to be a busy lake, there's, there's some campsites that you roll up on. And it's like, oh, it's swampy and buggy and, rocky ground and there's no decent place to pitch a tent and it's like wow thank god i've got a hammock tent for this campsite or whatever a campsite can really make a break and there's uh there's uh, in my experience in my history it's like there's a lot of my favorite tent sites my favorite campsites yeah i've been on a trip uh, i i one trip that i uh, remember pretty well because of the last day campsites. Um, I had gone on, there was only two, two sites on the river that I was traveling and I know I wanted the one site, but when I got to it, um, it was taken, unfortunately. So that's okay because there's, there's an extra site that I can head a little bit farther down the river and I'll catch that site. But that, that second site was basically might as well be camping right in the middle of a field and it was hot. And there was, if I had a hammock, I couldn't have pitched a hammock. And I guess it hadn't been used in a while because the raspberry bushes were, were coming up and, and pretty thick. And I mean, not only in August, that would have, uh, you know, in the fall, that would have been bear season in the raspberry bushes. So not a good plan anyway. But yeah, you start to think of trips that you've done and, and, and campsites that you wouldn't dare go back to again. And you'd warn people off about it. And I mean, we've talked about uh, the um, online forums where that's exactly what you do. You go, you go there and you post, you know, I hit this lake and I hit this campsite and it was garbage or it was a beautiful site. And so that, that just sort of brings up the discussion. What do you look for when you're on a backcountry trip and you come to a lake at the end of the day or mid-afternoon, and you haven't really been told, you know what, check this site out and check this one out. It's basically you show up at a lake that no one's been to or nobody that you know has been to. What are you looking for when you start circling the lake looking for sites? For me, well, first, the unoccupied ones. <laughs> <laughs> you think? Yes. <laughs> but uh, for me, it, when I'm, I usually try to get to a lake and my, my destination early enough, because if, if I'm in a high traveled route, then usually by two or three o'clock, if you're not landing soon, all the decent sites are taken. And, uh, one of my favorite things to do is, uh, if I'm doing a rest day or whatever, I like to visit all of the campsites on the lake if they're unoccupied, just to check them out, right? Just to see, well, for the next trip, I wonder what one I should have stayed at. Yeah, if you're if you've got the time and the day to do that, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. if you if you land early enough, that's perfect to do. You know, you get get some of that ex- exploration out of the out of the way. Yes, in a pinch, any campsite will do, but uh, I usually try to avoid at all costs anything that's swampy and buggy, and if there's a lot of evergreens and stuff like that, you, you, you're going to be eaten alive depending on the time of the year, which is one of the reasons why I usually prefer to camp in like October. Just because of the bugs, right? Yeah, if you're going in the spring, um, if you got a, if you're near a bit of a swamp, you're going to get absolutely eaten alive. Exactly. Now, you may be lucky enough in, in our area to to have some moose wander through. I mean, there's the bonus there. But are you willing to <laughs> put up with the bugs? Exactly. All all the rest of that time. Drink lots of liquids. Replace the blood that sucked out of you. Exactly. 
Yeah, so the, the swamp's out of the way, the buggy areas are out of the way. Now in the summer, you'd like a bit more open spot with the with the wind to come through. Yeah, and... something to blow the bugs away, something if it's hot, you, it's a cool breeze, and in a pinch, if you uh, if it does get chilly, you can climb inside the tent. But otherwise, the, the a, bre- a nice open tent site is nice to blow the bugs away. If there's a nice wind blowing, you're not going to have the, the bug issue. Yeah, as opposed to spring and summer, or sorry, spring and fall, when you're looking more for... Uh, you want the wind some, blocks. Some wind blocks, some trees, exactly. bushes, that sort of stuff. Uh, you want that wind block so that way, you know... Because, yeah, it can get mighty, mighty chilly in the evenings. And even Absolutely. if you're sitting around the fire, if you got yes. that wind whistling through, you're it's going right right to the bone. Yes, then you're putting up tarps for wind blocks and it's like yeah. anything at all costs, block the wind. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you, you, I know I do this, I circle as much as I can the lake and check out the sites and, and if I can see a, a beach site, then I'll, yeah, I'll definitely, I'll take that because. I love beach sites. Yeah. You want to go swimming and it's easier to, to be, to, to land on a beach and haul your gear out and haul the canoe out. And yeah. if you want to go swimming or you want to go out fishing at the end of the day after your campsite's all set up and whatnot. And, and it's nice to have a soft landing for the canoe. As yeah. opposed to racking it up on the rocks, you just slide across the sand. And, you know, I'm not too careful with my canoe, but I avoid rocks at all costs. Yeah. And I mean, if you do end up with a rocky site, it's great to have one with a nice flat rock because if you need to filter water, you got somewhere to sit. Yeah, exactly. If you need to, you know, get water for doing dishes and whatnot, that you can just, it's easy enough to scoot or down a, nice, a flat rock. Or, a nice flat rock out away from the trees that you can just lay on their back at night and look at all the stars. Yeah. It's, it always amazes me, like living in the city, you really forget to appreciate the fact that when you're out in Algonquin or any other park, Clarny or whatever, you look up at the sky and it's like, there's no light pollution and you just see the Milky Way and all the stars and, and you sit there waiting for the next uh, shooting star. It's just, it's so beautiful and relaxing at the end of your day, just to sit there and stare up the sky. Well, we also go down to the side of the lakes and hell for wolves some nights too, if we think they're in the area. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, there's more to the campsite than choosing a site than just the site itself. Exactly. It's got to have a good entry into it because you don't want to be, if you're going to be there, especially for a couple of days, you don't want to be clambering up and down all the rocks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, the you climb. know, hauling, yeah, hauling your, your canoe up and down, smacking your knees and your, the bottom of your canoe and that sort of stuff. Yeah, you, you want something there with a nice, easy entry to it, if, if you can get it. You know, there's one site I, that, as you say that, it reminds me. It was a, uh, it was an island campsite in the north end of Algonquin Park. And I was with Mark Rubino on this trip, and we pulled in, and it was a long-haul slog. It, every time we made water, filtered water, it was, a, it was a long, hilly climb. But at night, on the opposite side, it was a tall cliff face, about 20 or 30 feet to the water. And we sat on this ledge and we saw the northern lights. So this is far north end of Gonkin Park. We saw northern lights for the longest time. And it just because of the exposure on the north side of this island, we heard, uh, we heard wolves, loons. We saw the northern lights. So it ended up being worth the climb, the pain in the ass climb to get up to the top of this campsite. It was a nice flat level area at the top. But then this cliff face on the uh, north side of the island, it was amazing. And I would stay at that campsite again in a heartbeat. Now, when you get to the site and you find it's a nice, easy site to get to, and then you zip up onto the site itself. When, you're, when you, I mean, you still got your, your paddle in your hand, you got your, your life jacket on still, and you, you're getting out and say, you know what, let's check this one out. It looks like it's a good location. What do you look for on the site itself? Well, my radar goes off right away. It's like, as soon as I, as soon as I enter the site, I'm looking for fire pit location. Is the tent sites far enough away from the fire pit? Last thing I want is burn holes in my tent, right? So I'm, I'm like, oh, I, I centralize myself with the fire pit and I scan around. I'm looking for, and I'm aware of the north, south, east, west. I'm looking for a tent site that's flat and level. Right now I'm using a, I often use a hammock, but still I'm looking for a decent site that's away from the fire pit, that's away from prevailing winds to blow any sparks onto my tent. And I'm looking for a tent site that's going to catch the morning sun. 
it's it's really nice, especially if it's a travel day the next day, that the morning sun is going to burn off any humidity or moisture from your tent right away, and you're not packing a wet tent. If it's raining, well, you know, you're out of luck anyways, but it, it's that first morning sun onto your tent. It wakes you up, gets you going, warms you up, and gets you going good for the day. And at the end of the day, if, if, when you do pitch the tent, it's it's cooler, you're, you're in the shade because it, you know, the, the, the sun setting in the West, you get that shade. It's, that's one of the things that I always look for. And as well, well I always hunt out the, the thunder box right off the bat to make sure that I'm not going to be pitching my tent where everybody's traveling to and from during the night if I'm with a larger group. Yeah. Getting back to the, the sun shade thing. If you're out and paddling all day in the sun, the last thing you want to do is, is sit on your uh, yeah, sit on your on your campsite with the sun just beating down on you. Yeah, I know that's what I do. I look for some shade there, and yeah, especially on a really hot summer's day, you get that. Now, if you you're doing the hammock, so I guess one of the things you're definitely looking for is some good trees too. Yeah, you want uh, some decent large trees. I, there's a, been a few sites where I've had to tie up against birch trees and. You know, even if you have a 10 or 12 inch birch tree, those things can sag if they're getting to start punky and getting old, right? Yeah. So you're looking for some strong trees and anything away from the fire pit again, because, you know, there's, there's usually the noises of the fire if you're going to bed early or whatever. And it, Yeah. One, one of the things talking about the fire pit that, that I look for it, when I look up, I get up there and I just take a quick little boo through the woods there, is this, if there's um, deadfall and stuff that I'm going to be able to get some wood for the fire you know like you don't want to show up uh, on a uh, camp spot that's all new green trees <laughs> exactly. and then you go for firewood and, and you've got There's nothing nothing you know islands are bad for that you, know, mm -hmm. you go to an island site and that's fantastic you know we got the island site and there's not going to be anybody else on it and well unfortunately it's been picked so over. picked over yeah exactly that there's nothing left for a fire so it's a win-win or win-lose situation right <laughs> yes but uh yeah and i think that's pretty much it you you get up there and you look at it you look at it and make sure there's a nice area now there's things around the fire pit that are a bonus like benches if somebody's rolled some giant logs around the edge of the fire pit that's perfect yep. or I, I can remember oh it was one of our trips we uh we went on and somebody had built stone benches all around the fire pit it was amazing I don't oh, know that how... was uh that was over off of um the Barren canyon yeah Barren canyon when we went over there yeah it was uh, that looked like it was a lot of work but it was great it was you had stone benches and they were moving like you know 200 pound stones with backrests and it was uh it was a great campsite great tent site we we're there in the fall in the fall wasn't it? well and that was the one the one rock seat um with the, the higher back uh, seat there, when you got the fire roaring, it heated the rock. Yes. And then you could sit there. It reflected and it was, the heat back to you. Yeah. And then, and then when you sat on the stone, mm -hmm. it, was, it held some of the heat too, which was nice. Uh, but yeah, definitely if there's some furniture <laughs> sitting there, that makes things a lot easier. Yes. You know, you're not sitting on the ground the entire time and, and whatnot. But uh, yeah, you know what? It's got to be nice. I prefer a more... Um, taller trees with some shade. Yeah. You know, it's got to have a good view of the lake or the, or the river that you're, you're on. You know, you don't want to be facing into a bay yeah. with no view of anything. That kind of defeats the purpose. Away from swampy areas. Away from swamping areas. Um, I like a, a nice fishing area if you can, you know, that you can cast out offshore and, yes. and, uh, and do some fishing. Or even if it's, if an easy access, you know, you can launch your canoe and go out for an evening paddle and you're not worrying that you got to be hauling the thing all over rocks and, <laughs> exactly. and whatnot. But yeah, you know what? A nice flat spot to put your tent, um, some good trees to, if it's bad weather, you, you definitely know you've got a yeah, some spots to put some tarps up yeah. over the fire pit and that sort of thing. And yeah, there's not a whole lot that is a necessary... You know, I got to have, got to have, got to have, and I'm not taking this site mm -hmm. because it doesn't have. There's things that are nice, but the time of year um, dictates the type of site, the way it faces, whether there's north wind coming down or, 
you know, uh, east winds. Because I know in Algonquin you get to, if you go to the northwest corner of the park, the way the the landscape is, it, seen, it tends to funnel the afternoon funnel the wind, yes. winds right down from the west, the northwest, straight down to the, the southeast. And if you're facing northwest, you're getting that wind full on. And <laughs> it's, oh, you're trying to get your fire going and keep it going and the smoke's blowing in your face and it's like, oh man. But uh, yeah, you know what? I think it depends on the year, the situation, the lake, the view. You know, uh, there's there's not too much that you can, you know, there's no cookie cutter yes. uh, campsite. When I first started camping, it was it was a learning experience about what was good a site, what was a bad site. But now I can walk into a site and it just has a vibe or a buzz. You walk in and it's like, oh, this yeah. is good. This is sweet. And you wander around, you see where everything is situated. It's, it's no longer a contemplate the site. It's like you just... After so many years, you just kind of know it's like, oh, this is a good site. Look at the fire pit. Look at the tent sites. You know, it's uh, it really kind of comes with experience. And anybody listening would appreciate that walking on your site. If you have some experience, it's just like, wow, this is the site I want to stay on. Yeah. And then, you know what? You'll also get the nice, nice sites. You're thinking, this is great. And then you start looking around and you can see it's been well used and mm-hmm. there's garbage. Yes. And that's the sad part about it is, uh, uh, and I think this is more of the inexperienced campers, the, the, the weekend warriors and stuff like that. You get onto a site and some of them are just abused and misused and, and used up. And somebody's decided it took them upon themselves to move the fire pit because they decided that it would be a better spot somewhere else, which is the wrong thing to do. Yeah, you have to respect the site, respect the the campsite, respect the park, and take what you get, and don't try and make it better for yourself and start building stuff. Yeah, and I mean, even when you go to to Crown Land, you know that that seems to be a big thing that's starting to take off over the last couple of years is is Crown Land camping, just because the uh, the fees at the provincial parks and stuff up up in in Ontario are starting to creep up there. They are. They, things are starting to get expensive. Yeah, it used to be a day where the camping was the, the thing to do because it was cheap. And it's not, not as cheap as it used to be. So no. a lot of the crown camping starting. And even there you go, you 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 start following the routes through where people have gone. And, and you can see where people have camped and, and whatnot. And you try to, you know what, if there's already a camp spot there, then use it. There's no sense cutting out a new area. And, you know, that goes back to our leave no trace discussion we had last week, yes. you know, and, but you can still see even there, you know, um, that people are leaving, they, they tote something in and they think, well, I'm not bringing this back out and they leave it. Yeah. It's unfortunate. You know? Yeah. And that, that turns me off on some of the sites, but you know what? You go out, you take a peek at a site and hopefully you, you find one you like and, and you get out of your canoe and you climb on in and just stand there you look okay the fire pit looks great and i can see a couple spots right off the bat where i'm going to be able to pitch a tent or two and way back there you can see some big trees with massive uh, branches i can be able to hang a food bag and you know and as you say thunder boxes out of the way and not on Mm -hmm. a you know nicely marked that there's the trail going that way and and you just turn around a beautiful view and you're like yep we're here for the day you talk to anybody who has been camping at any specific park or whatever for over many years, and you have this conversation with them, and you, you, they in like a hushed tone, oh, on Ralph Bice Lake, the point as you come into the lake, it's one of the best sites I've ever seen. You know, they usually it's a hushed tone. It's like, oh, yeah, it's my favorite site. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's some some definitely ones there that, oh, yeah, when you're on the forums and that, and they say, if you hit this lake, go to the beach site mm-hmm. or go to, go to the one around the bay, go to the one off the point. Yeah. And yeah. If you can, you can find that information before you go anywhere and people tell you, and, and it's, it's usually a lot of agreements on some of these sites that people exactly. just love. So yeah, you know what though? Like, Hey, I just take my map with me and circle the ones I like. And if I'm going to be on a lake for a couple of days, uh, I make sure as I pass them by, I, I check out some of the sites that I'm not staying on or haven't checked out and I make little notes on my map and uh, hopefully can pass them on to people that are going that way. 
people that are listening to this conversation, let us know what your favorite campsite and what your favorite park is. Drop us a line. Go to our Facebook page. We have links to Twitter and Instagram and, and whatnot. So just, just send, drop us a line. Let us know what your favorite campsite is on your favorite lake or your favorite park. You are listening to Paddling Adventures Radio on Reno Viola Outdoors. Do you enjoy getting on the water with a paddle in your hand? If so, this show's for you. Listen to Paddling Adventures Radio every Wednesday at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. and see what's happening in the world of paddle sports. Paddling Adventures Radio. Whether you're close to home or far away, grab a paddle and get on the water. We were talking about uh, kayaking and stuff like that last week. And I was talking about with some friends during the week about um, maybe learning some stand-up paddleboard stuff, right? Getting out and, and doing some paddleboard stuff. And just looking at the schedule I've got and, and what now is going on. And I came across a place in Ottawa called Urban Ocean. And not only do they, they teach you to paddleboard, they've got their stuff here. But they're, new, they're showing some stuff that I didn't realize that some of these you do with paddle boards. Um, of course, they got the regular stand-up paddle board fundamentals. You know, the, the SUP 101. Then they got the 2.0 advanced skills. So if you're looking to take your, your skills and, um, you know, advance, advance what you know. You know, mm-hmm. better, better skills and stuff. Uh, they talk about safety and all that sort of stuff. And then going with what we talked about uh, last week, the yoga. They've got the stand-up paddleboard fitness. There's the circuit, uh, which is like an advanced class, of a 45-minute workout. Uh, performance. There's the yoga. There's a floating yoga. Um, they got, I just started looking at their site of what they've got. Now, unfortunately. It's like they cover everything off. They, they really do. Uh, first waves, white water, stand up paddleboard. So people take these on white water. Yeah. And that's the thing. I didn't realize that. I mean, you, you think about, I think that would be a very unique situation. I don't. Well, apparently they have this one, one instructor, Dan, and he's a white water specialist. Huh. Uh, they, you look on their site and they give a little bio of, of, of some of their instructors. Um, cause they have kids programs and regular instructors and stuff. And it says, Dan has followed the path of his paddle from sitting down as a professional whitewater kayaker. So, you know, he, know, he knows how to read the whitewater. Yeah. To standing up as a pioneer of whitewater stand-up paddle boarding. He is co-producer of the DVD, The Ultimate Guide to Stand-Up Paddling. He's an athlete, event director, MC, and passionate instructor. I didn't realize, and I don't know why. Never would have occurred to me to take one of these on whitewater. Yeah, and they, they show little, uh, they, there's pictures in the gallery and stuff that they're showing of them, of them doing this. Um, yeah, First Waves Whitewater Stand-Up. It's, it's uh, Introduction to Whitewater. Is for the paddler with some previous experience on a stand-up paddleboard. You will learn how to negotiate eddies, ferry across the river, and read river current to successfully na- uh, negotiate rapids. Huh. Not something I would think of. <laughs> no, it uh, seems very unusual to me. It's uh, because you're you're perched on top of a board, and yep. I imagine he's you're going to have a specialized board for this. So you, Last thing you'd want to do is take a yoga board or whatever. Yeah, that they look like maybe they're a bit smaller board because, yeah, you definitely. Um, it's because they're, well, they're talking about racing as well. So I'm thinking they're they're probably maybe using a, a, a definitely a different style board yeah. than the ones you're you're seeing everybody paddling around a lake on, right? Maybe a smaller, narrower board. It's interesting. The further we get into researching our talks and our weekly episodes that the, the uh, it's really broadening my horizons it's uh, you know I, I i've never i've only ever seen a stand-up paddleboard in a showroom and stuff so i've never tried one i'm gonna have to try one one day but it's uh it really it's opening my eyes up to how diverse stand-up paddleboarding can be and i when you i was up with you when you were picking out your canoe when you purchased your canoe and there's a, a very wide range of stand-up paddleboards in their showroom and 
you know, you could see the wider, flatter ones are for yoga, and there's some very sleek lined ones that would be, I guess, for racing and stuff. Yeah. It's it's really surprising me that it is so diverse, because I didn't think you could find so many different ways to use a stand-up paddleboard. No, I mean, when you think of it, you stand on it and you paddle around. Yeah, yeah. You know, you paddle up the river, down the river, across the lake, whatever. But I came across this site, Urban Ocean. Um, like I say, they're uh, out of Ottawa. Uh, UrbanOceanSUP.com. You can check them out and Google them. They're, they're easy, easily found. But this is what really stood up about this place was the fact that it's not just stand on a paddleboard, rent a paddleboard, stand up on it and paddle across the river. Mm-hmm. They offer all these extra things, which, and one of them is sup with your pup. Um, oh, for dogs on. For dogs. Huh. And yeah, they, they, they have a dog, Karma, uh, a Labrador, and he likes to go on the, the stand-up paddle board as well. Interesting. And they, I guess they get a bunch of people with their dogs out there and they just have a little toodle around and, and, uh, around the Ottawa river there and, uh, have a good old time. <laughs> I'm going to have to rent one of these things. I'm obviously not going to buy one, but I'm going to have to rent one and uh, check it out. Yeah, it if out. I'm putting out the money, I'm going for another canoe, not uh, <laughs> exactly, a, a yeah. paddleboard. Yeah. So in researching this, uh, oh, yeah, so they all also have paddle socials. So they get a bunch of people together. And have and, a board and, meeting. And, yeah, yeah. That, well, that's what they had. Have a board <laughs> meeting. Uh, so team building yep. for your company and stuff, right? Oh, yeah. That, yeah. A board meeting. Exactly, yeah. Right? Quite creative what they're doing here, but it, it's pretty neat there. Um, may, I'm heading to Ottawa soon, and I may have to just check them out. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, just seeing some of this stuff this is pretty cool. It really it really attracted me to, to their company. Uh, just the different things they offer and the places. Yeah. I mean, like I say, you, you think that you're just going to go stand up on a paddleboard and, and paddle around, but you can go in races and you can go um, in whitewater and, and it's really starting to. Very diverse. Very diverse. But one of the things I found, and I see all the pictures, especially down in the state, uh, not the states, the, the islands and Mexico and the hot spots. And everybody's out there and they're paddle boarding through these tropical areas and it all looks so cool. And, and they're in their bathing suits and bikinis <laughs> and, and all that sort of stuff. But what I found out in a couple of different sites there and something you don't think about is you see some of the people going on the longer trips. You got to th- think they're going on a long trip, bigger bodies of water and that. And they got a PFD on. Yeah. And a backpack so, on their board yeah. or... So you're not thinking, I never really gave it much of a thought, but I came across this article talking about stand-up paddle boards, safety, and Canadian regulations. Oh, yeah. I guess they would, well, that would be regulated as a... Well, it says there are a few key pieces of equipment that are necessary by law in Canada while paddling. And um, Transport Canada understands that paddle boards as human powered vessels when they're being used for navigation would make them fall under the same guidelines as a canoe or kayak. Hmm. Now they say they stipulate well used for navigation. So if you're doing yoga, they wouldn't necessarily apply, but if you're going to go from point A to point B. Right. So it's, it's they, they go on to say, if you were um, undertaking a trip or a circuit such as a group crossing or a solo outing, this is considered navigation, and you are subject to have a Canadian Ghost Card approved PFD, or an inflatable belt pack, sound signaling device like a whistle, and a 15 minute meters of floating rope. Just like what you're having Just a like you have in a canoe, like yeah. the little safety kit and all that. Yeah. Which when you start, I started looking at the images, yeah, you see people once in a while. You'll see people with their with their pad, with their life jackets on, but you don't see a lot of them. You don't see, and gear. you don't see the, the safety, safety gear. gear you're supposed yeah. to have either, which opens a whole new can of worms when you're you're starting to look at this. Um, the exception to the rule is when the paddleboard is being used within the surf zone for surfing activities, uh, and like you say with the yoga and stuff like that. 
so if you're just doing something close to the to the shore, you're surfing, you need to go out, catch a wave and come back, okay. that sort of yep. stuff. It's not needed. Mm-hmm. But if you're going out for the day across the lake, down the river, and you know, you're doing a little tour, according to the rules, the, you the laws, have. you have to have this stuff, just like you're a kayak or a canoe yeah. or, or, or whatever. Hmm. If traveling before sunrise or after sunset, a navigation light is also required. Well, wait a sec. I don't ever, I've never carried a navigation light on a canoe. Mm-hmm. Although I don't travel at night. Well, that's, <laughs> that's my thing is I don't really, I don't travel at night in the canoe. Yeah. If I'm way back in the back country, maybe I'll go out, you know, just off, you know, 20 meters offshore, yeah. sit in the canoe or lay in the bottom and look up at the stars. That's but you don't have deep. lights. Yeah. But. Yeah, I'm not going out canoeing in the middle of the night sort yeah. of thing. So I guess this would be applicable if you're if you're paddleboarding just off of Toronto Islands or something and and yeah. Know, so it's yeah. heavily heavily uh traveled with heavy boat, travel. big boats. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I, I found that uh really interesting that you know, when you if you start looking at all the images and that, yeah, it's it's not there. People hmm. people don't have all the the safety gear they're but by law that required of, to have. There'd be a lot of propaganda pictures too. Right, like it's advertising or, or oh whatever. yeah, you so see they those. They clean it up. They yeah. don't put a lot of stuff in. Yeah, but I'm looking at the ones where people have posted pictures. Yeah, of of themselves paddleboarding and stuff for for the day and stuff like that, and no one has it. Well, it's something to it's think about, I guess. Definitely something to think about. So, but in, you know what, UrbanOceanSUP.com, check them out. They're in the Ottawa area. Uh, I think I'm going to uh, next time I'm in Ottawa visiting the family. I think I'm going to have to check them out too. You've been listening to Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm Sean Rowley. And I'm Derek Specht. We'll see you next time.